welcome Aaron in this guest house that I have, uh, where I invite my guests and uh, have a really super long conversation with them. Uh, okay, so uh, this is the favorite question that I, the very first question that I ask my guests is, uh, how would I, how would a loved one introduce you? <laughs> oh man, so this is my favorite introduction I've gotten about myself. My little sister introduced me to one of her friends by saying something like, this is Aaron. He reads too many books and asks a lot of weird questions. <laughs> <laughs> is, that a, so that, is that a universal sign that the positions here should be changed? Like you <laughs> would rather be asking the questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe someday I'll start my own podcast. But until then, I'm on yours. So... I read too many books. I ask weird questions. That's <laughs> and how would they introduce you professionally? Like, what do you do professionally? If you ask them. Yeah, professionally right now, I am a teacher and a writer. Um, and those are, those are the two professional things. I'm transitioning more into the writing and we met each other through Medium. Yeah. But yeah, um, professionally, in I am in my day job. I am an ESL teacher in a small town in Western Colorado. Mm. Sounds uh, interesting, I guess. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes it's interesting. <laughs> sometimes it's overwhelming, um, but it's never boring. That's definitely, mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I know you as the funny guy from the group. <laughs> <laughs> And I wanted to do this, uh, you know, interview. So I've been doing this interview for the past uh, three months now, this whole series. And one of the reasons that I'm doing this is I wanted to have conversation with really interesting people or people, you know, for, from whom I want to learn something about. And uh, humor is something that I feel is really missing from whatever I'm doing, like far away, not even closer on my radar. So I see you as a funny guy. <laughs> Are you really funny in your like normal life as well? Or like humor is just one part of your writing? <laughs> That's a really interesting question. I mean, I try to be funny. I put a lot of value in being funny because I think, I think it's, it's very, very necessary in the world we live in today. And I've learned a lot about humor. I mean, humor is based on most of the time based on what's unexpected. Like we laugh because we don't see something coming. Um, so I always try to, I always try to like say some of the craziest things that pop into my head. Those are often very funny. Um, mm. I also have a pretty wild imagination as I'm sure you've seen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think humor is really important to me and I think it's very necessary and the world needs it, you know, like the, we're in, we're in a dark place and we're forgetting to laugh a lot of the times. Totally agree. And have you been doing it? Like, does it come to you naturally or have you practiced it like deliberately? That's a good question. I think <clears throat> it definitely has not come to me naturally. You know, mm -hmm. growing up in high school, like I was not the funniest person in my friend group, not by far. And I was really jealous of the people who were. And so I started copying a lot of their mannerisms and noticing the way that they told their jokes 
And as I moved out into the world and made new friends and grew up, I put a lot of value on trying to be funny. And then over time, just sort of learned how, um, just learned how to make people laugh in larger settings. Um, mm. And then, yeah, yeah. That kind of gives me a validation that I can learn humor as well. It's, it's something of a <laughs> skill that you can learn. Obviously, you know, yeah. there are certain things that are natural and certain things that you can learn over a time period. And what I've seen is I used to be a funny guy, but then I learned how to be bold, how to be a bold. <laughs> Not kidding. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think that like, so I've been saying this for years and years. I think, I think maturity is another word for boring. And yeah. I, I think that like we are kind of taught, especially in our myth of Western success, that to be successful means to be serious and straight laced and sort of boring. And I want no part of it. If that's what maturity is, if maturity means you can't laugh at a fart joke, count me out. And uh, yeah, that, that's something that I'm, I've been learning recently. So I've made it kind of a, a priority in my list that within this year I need to start you know at least learning how to you know uh, add comedy to whatever I'm doing mm -hmm. add a little pinch of humor and stuff like that uh, so far I've been successful in adding really deeply vulnerable and personal stories in whatever I'm writing or you know doing these interviews and anything like that yeah uh, so it, it is connecting what I'm doing at the same time, I understand what it's lacking. It's lacking the humor part. It, it gets boring sometimes when you kind of start preaching. Well, I think like something very interesting is that humor is cultural as well. Like mm. um, what works for me might not necessarily work for you where you're living and vice versa. Like what works in the group may not work for the people that you're spending time around. I mean, it's all about just like testing the waters, seeing what you can move forward with, seeing what you can get away with. <laughs> but doesn't it uh, actually uh, also have something that, so a lot of uh, humor or comedy is universal as well. Like, for example, Joey doesn't share food. Hmm. It's kind of universal. Like, it doesn't really matter if you're in, you know, Uganda or if you're in India or America. It, it's funny almost everywhere, I guess. Yeah, like physical comedy, I would say, is usually funny everywhere you go. Like, you know, slapstick, people getting hurt, people falling down. <laughs> That's usually funny. Mm. Um, what's interesting, like when I was living in Nepal, they just didn't do sarcasm. Like my little cousins who spoke English, I had this whole conversation trying to explain what sarcasm was. And they were like, so you just say what you don't mean because you're a terrible person? And I'm like, no, 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 because it's funny. <laughs> so uh, about sarcasm, I have this theory. I, I don't remember if I've shared this with you. Uh, so last year I met a monk and uh, he kind of, you know, recommended me to practice non-violence in words. So non-violence okay. in actions I'm already doing. I'm a vegan. I don't, you know... Uh, exploit animals just to feed myself and stuff like that so i'm practicing non-violence in action but he wanted me to you know he asked me can you go a level deeper can you practice non-violence in words and what i figured out insulting someone is kind of a violence yeah and 
sarcasm is a really really thin line where you may be hurting someone if it's not checked and stuff like that so i don't know i'm i'm trying to so in indian context what i have seen a lot of comedy is uh, kind of insulting others basic you know like putting up sarcastic comments or you know uh, saying mean things uh, have have you watched that 70s show <laughs> a couple times but yeah definitely not my favorite it's it's, it's a really mean show <laughs> it's comedy <laughs> people laugh at it yeah. but it's really mean comedy <laughs> yeah <laughs> on the other hand uh, like big bang theory again has a lot of mean or sarcastic comedy friends on the other hand has a lot you know not so sarcastic comedy that's what i feel yeah tv series have you seen where you know you see that it's not really mean comedy but it's like fun fun comedy um i would say uh well my favorite tv series are things like they're called black books which is a british show the it crowd and mm. how i met your mother which i grew up with um <clears throat> i wouldn't say they they can be mean but mm. it's mostly like the joke is that the main characters can't function very well yeah. and we like we the audience are laughing at that at how bad they are at life um so yeah i don't i don't think i i mean that it's definitely a close line to walk because there are certain funny insults that can bring a group closer together as well like you're not always pointing out a character flaw um like it, it's like gossiping uh you know like how or bitching about your boss right it's i mean so close, closest thing you can do in you know a corporate workplace i guess Yeah, like the so any time that you're talking about someone who's not there, then that I guess would be what you were calling violence in words. Um any time that like the joke is on someone who isn't with you, then I think that would be violence in some way. But if it's like if it's a a good-natured insult and the person who the person who's with you in the group knows that it's something that they need to work yeah. on and they're mature about it that's not violence that can actually I'm... bring a that can bring a group closer together just as long as you're not pointing out that person's insecurities and rather like highlighting something that even though people may love about them they yeah. still need to work on that mm. can be used for good it's not always i would say and i'm also not a monk So I <laughs> so all of us you know practice uh, morality or goodness or badness at our different levels uh, a lot right. of people who are not really monks but would have probably been practicing those characteristics even on a higher note right uh, but interestingly I, i don't know if you have read it have you read it there was a really viral uh, post on medium in 2015 or 16 maybe by a person Uh, who mentioned how friends caused a kind of a downfall for nerd nerdy people in US because if you look at it uh, there was only one person who was really educated and you know kind of intellectual in the whole group 
and any time right. you know in in the friends group and any time he he started talking about something people would laugh or at him or mock him or you know like try to act like they are sleepy and stuff like that yeah so uh, that that was a really great uh, you know take on this kind of a matter that you know even these a uh, tv series because friends is a really really popular show like a lot of people have watched it and right. you know just uh, just talking about the aftermath of what would happen about these kind of comedy have you ever thought about it this way about the yeah and so well okay so the like i think what you're talking about is like characters in television in sort of shutting people down when they get pretentious, right? Or when like someone really educated is sort of steamrolling someone who has less education or just cuz in in how I in um in the show How I Met Your Mother, Ted Mosby the main character is getting shut down for that too. He's like a well-educated architect, he's read a lot of poetry, he's done all this mm-hmm. pretentious stuff, but his friends are always shutting him down when he brings it up. And I think to understand that you sort of have to understand western culture cuz mm. like america and australia like so i've lived in australia i've grew up in the us mm-hmm. we are really sort of founded on the principle of mistrust of authority both because mm. of the english <laughs> um mm. like because the english started australia as a prison colony americans revolted against the english to begin with so yeah. we are very very individualistic and very mistrustful of authority. And so when there's sort of pretentiousness, I think it's kind of natural for us to shut it down. Mm, I see. And it, it's not only about, you know, the western TV serials. So if you watch about uh recently I got really interested and I watched uh, not recently last year, I watched a couple of, you know, Pakistani TV serials who were really popular. Uh, so mm-hmm. a couple of them one of them was uh, can't remember the name so basically you know the really viral chick flick type tv serials but even chick flick in uh, south asian countries especially in uh, india and pakistan would mean a lot of family comedy or you right. know uh, you, you understand the point mm-hmm. and these uh, serials and you know obviously because i'm i really like tv serials and you know these movies and stuff so it also gets me thinking sometimes that how they are impacting us and now that we compare what we have seen as growing up like 20 years ago two decades ago versus what they are showing now they have a lot of, i want to use the word creepiness in a better way i don't find a better word than that but anyway uh, in the name of modernization a lot of times what happens is they uh, portray some creepiness anyway uh, let's let's not go in depth about that well, i had, so yeah. so in um in in indian tv serials especially comedies in the pakistani ones that you've watched who oh. is who are we usually laughing at who is the joke usually on so in india uh, in the last Three years, there's been a lot of uprise in Indian stand-up comedy, mm-hmm. and stand-up comedy, ninety to ninety-five percent consists of talking abuses, yeah. like abuse twice every sentence. <laughs> right. 
secondly uh, make fun of or you know usually do some uh, like below the belt joke non vegetarian joke so because you know like i i started with this mindset that you know what i want to not use sarcasm i want to see what clean comedy looks like right. i don't want to abuse either so in the last 6 or 8 months since i met that monk i have been on this personal experiment like what would happen if i don't abuse or use any abusive words i'm succeeding 90 95% yeah <laughs> this is a good growth <laughs> but anyway so honestly i couldn't find out you know what i found out 95% probably just i'm approximating the figures 95% indian stand up comedy has everything to do with uh, vulgarity and uh, abusive words and then this non veg joke so so in the in the tv series like which characters are we usually laughing at who is the joke usually on like who is messing <laughs> up life in a way that we laugh at them so uh india obviously as you know is a little conservative orthodox kind of community right so a lot of comedy mm-hmm. although they portray it as a family comedy is you know basically uh like testing out those conservative nature or using that as a reference to you know like make double meaning joke yeah that kind of that kind of that so uh, again there are many stereotypes like the uh, wife is supposed to be a household person or if she is outside uh, you know like again uh, she is supposed to be dumb or she is supposed to be overly ambitious you know like creating a perfect kind of a person either overly ambitious or totally dumb right so all of the memes if right. you see there was a really popular meme last year uh, and that was just on the basis of that how dumb this wife is a housewife is and yeah. so basically based on you know like uh, calling out on those stereotypes and all the dynamics i know i did yeah yeah definitely cuz i think answer? like yeah yeah i did okay. cuz yeah that's another thing that you can that's another thing when you talk about like violence through words and looking at cultural humor you can look at like you can look at shows and see like who is who's usually the idiot that we laugh at mm. um and in in a lot of american tv shows it's the father um there's been a lot of a lot of shows in the last couple of years where like Modern the mother is, is the them. one who's sort of holding the yes yeah uh, yeah dumpy, so it's usually like the mother what's that <laughs> uh the the you know father of uh, phil dunphy is his name i guess it's been some time i watched modern family i've never i've never seen modern family <laughs> oh yeah so but but i got your point yeah yeah and then, so it's usually like the mother is in like holding the household together and then the father is usually like the one who's causing trouble and living in a way that is ridiculous and then he's usually the one that the joke is on um and so yeah and that's and there's there's certain other things but yeah it's always like it's it's good to look at like who the joke is on because it shows like what a culture values because you have to realize like 
millions and millions of dollars go into making these shows. So they're not just like throwing together ideas. Like they have sat down, they've thought about like what's going to resonate best with an audience. And then they're coming up with characters based on that. And so who the fool is tells you a lot about the culture that you're living in. So if we talk about friends, I remember the uh, the father of Chandler. He was subject of mm-hmm. joke for a long time. Uh, if you watch yeah. Office, uh, the first six seasons, it was Michael Scott, the father yeah. figure of Dunder Mifflin. Yeah, interesting. Right. Not hard about it. Yeah, there's there's something about there's something about American culture that in our comedy we love incompetent leaders. um and i think i think that's like i think it's the same thing i think it's that there's just sort of an ingrained mistrust of authority and this like low level hatred of bosses managers and politicians because so much of our comedy when we look at our stand-up comedy it's i would say 50 percent at least is about politicians and so many comedians are like (laughs) are like pledging to not joke about politicians because it's so easy. Yeah, so here's what happened. So as, as I mentioned, the, you know, Indian stand-up comedy started taking off in the last three, four years, or four, five yeah. years. Uh, the result of making jokes on, in, on politicians in India is the reason why a couple of uh, comedians went to jail. Yeah. And so, uh, Indian comedians nowadays uh, try not to make direct jokes about politicians. Right. Yeah. And that that thing that can't happen here, like a comedian is allowed to say anything about any politician. Um, and so a lot of comedians do. And it's one it's actually I listened to this whole have you listened to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast revisionist history? Not yet. It is fascinating but there's there's a whole episode where he talks about like for some reason in american culture the people that we quote unquote let speak truth to power like the ones that are allowed to critique our society in any way are the comedians they're not the activists the activists end up getting in a lot of trouble but the comedians sort of have this license to say whatever they want especially to the people we consider powerful and it often all it really does is let us know that things are screwed up, but it often doesn't lead to any sort of lasting change. Totally understand. And that's oh. that's another thing, like, I think another thing is that it's it's usually okay to joke about how screwed up the world is. Um, and if you can make people laugh yeah. about that, they often feel better about, about the world they're living in, just a little bit. Cause like you're going <laughs> through, it's like a shared understanding, right? You're going yeah, through like... Yeah. So uh, have, have you heard, so based on whatever you mentioned, there was a perfect uh, stand-up uh, one, you know, said that fits into your context is The Environmentalist by George Carlin. No, I haven't seen have it. Watched, my goodness. So he talks about that, <laughs> that uh, so this world who was, you know, like, uh, who was born so many billion years ago or million years ago, who came into existence this much time ago, who had, who brought up dinosaurs and so many different life forms, who 
extincted those life life forms and who you know made this human life into existence so many different life forms so many different uh, organics that it produces do you really think it cares about one plastic bag that you carry <laughs> and <laughs> so that that is a that's a really funny stand up and it just i guess 15 minutes long and uh, it's available on youtube and yeah. george carlin is i really loved his comedy have you watched mm-hmm. any comedy by george carlin Yes I have. Yeah, and he's he's one of those like classic American comics that most people love because his comedy is kind of timeless. Like he's yeah. able to he's able to talk about society in a way that still makes perfect sense because he's just talking about how strange people are in almost any situation they go into. So um, <laughs> he mentions that you know like if you uh, paint a wall if you tell someone that the paint on the wall is wet they'd have to touch it to verify but if you tell them <laughs> right <laughs> that there's a higher power up in the cloud they'll believe you <laughs> blindly <laughs> yeah yeah and that's oh man that's that's a whole different topic but i'm i'm really like i'm really really interested in why people believe in conspiracy theories and cults um that just never gets old to me to talk about because it's always such a fascinating story it's always just like one guy comes along and says the craziest stuff you can imagine <laughs> and then a bunch of people just end up like a bunch of people are just like yeah well my life is so boring that i'm going to follow you to my death <laughs> so let let me ask you a question around this uh, what's the closest to sanity kind of uh, conspiracy or cult that you have seen that almost makes sense the, the closest to what so you know uh, some kind of conspiracy that you think almost makes sense <sighs> um see that don't tell me it's buddhism so <laughs> i don't i don't think <laughs> oh, okay well i wouldn't i wouldn't consider like i think religion is a different thing So like what my definition of cult is like a modern thing with a living leader. Um oh. so okay. something like Buddhism or Christianity, like I think a religion is different than a cult. Um right. now in terms of a conspiracy, I haven't seen very very many conspiracies that make sense because I think they take away from what's really important. Hmm. Okay. I think the when we're I think conspiracies are fun to believe because it's much more yeah. fun to think that there's like a sinister like let's take QAnon or the Illuminati, right? Yeah. Like it's much more How fun. How did you know it was on yeah. the mind? <laughs> <laughs> What, QAnon or the Illuminati? No, the Which one? Illuminati. Yeah. So I think it's much more fun to believe that there's like a secret organization pulling all these strings than it is to look at the truth which is that the rich and powerful run the world without having to hide anything mm. they run the world out in the open and they do whatever they want and it's so hard to conceptualize of that that many people would rather believe that there's this like secretive organization who's like hiding meaning in pyramids on dollar bills 
I think we go a bit crazy because the reality is hard to grasp. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's not probably hard to grasp. It's, it's, uh, it's just that it's probably hard to accept. Yeah. It's hard to accept because you have to go... Reality like, is it, actually simple what's in front of you. We want yeah. it to be a little complicated so that we can, you know, like kind of outsource our belief that maybe it's something that we don't understand. Why is this all happening? <laughs> right. Like, so how much do you know about QAnon? Almost nothing, I guess. Okay, so it's this it's this conspiracy theory where a lot of hardcore right-wing people in the United States believe that the Democratic Party and the people at the high level are involved in this like worldwide pedophilia child sex trafficking ring and also okay. like in demon worship. And it's okay. it's one of the so the reason it's so fascinating to me is that so they can easily be labeled as a cult. They have mm. they have a guy who calls himself Q. So they have a living leader. Q puts out what are called Q drops, where he talks about how like certain things are going to happen. Um, for a long time, they believe that Donald Trump was going to like basically hang a lot of the Democrats, like oh. public hold public executions. Yeah, like really violent, crazy stuff. They believe <laughs> that there's. So they believe that there's a video of Hillary Clinton eating the face off of a baby and no one's ever seen oh. it, right? Like no <laughs> one's ever seen the video, but everyone who's in the group knows it exists. <laughs> and okay. you're the idiot for not believing in that. And there's Obviously. like, um, so the, the thing that's really fascinating to me is that, so their, their leader makes these predictions. None of them have ever come true right? Out of hundreds and mm. hundreds of them. And they believe that that is part of the plan. <laughs> like their slogan is trust the plan. So you can never argue with that logic. There's so nothing- Actually, uh, that, that's the first rule of any religion, any cult that have blind faith in it. Right. Yeah. And that, <laughs> so, so I had this, I had this conversation and I'm going to be writing about this soon. But the, I, I was talking to this, this guy at one of my favorite cafes, and he said something I thought was really insightful, which is that like, like when you look at real pedophilia and sex abuse, it's a very dark, hidden, twisted thing that happens on the local level in communities, mostly by people who know the kids, right? Yeah. yeah. It's horrible. And it is way more fun to pretend that that's not happening and that there's this international ring of pedophiles yeah. and it's way more fun to believe that than it is to believe that it's happening in your local community and it could be being perpetrated by people you know and that you would have to do something to stop it because if it's this big international thing and all you have to do is share stuff on facebook <laughs> that's yeah easy and lazy <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you uh, have you known any pedophile yourself? No, thankfully. Um, I I mean, I've worked with people that I found out later were registered sex offenders, but I don't know any details about that. But no, I've never I've never known one. Let's circle back to the Illuminati part. 
I really love okay. conspiracy theories. Tell me yeah. more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, about the Illuminati? Yeah. Um, yeah, because yeah, I just think, I mean, I, I think I summed, I summed up my feelings. It's just, it's much more fun to believe in conspiracy theories like that than it is to accept the reality of how powerful people just openly screw us over. Mm. So what, what do you, what are your thoughts about aliens? Let's talk about that. Um, I think it's ridiculous that to, to believe that we're alone in the universe. I mean, the, yeah, like... <laughs> exactly. I don't know, man. I, I just feel that you're part of Illuminati because you're kind of using the words that are in my brain. <laughs> Wait, I'm part of the Illuminati? Yeah, because I was actually just thinking about this thing that, you know, it's kind of egocentric to just say, believe that we are alone in the universe. Well, if I am part of the Illuminati, I don't know it. I haven't been invited. I don't know if you like oh, received. <clears throat> yeah, it could be. That might be it. <laughs> like, I don't know if you like, maybe you get, it's like a wedding invitation in the mail. Maybe you get one of those to join the Illuminati, but I haven't gotten mine yet. Or maybe you are just a part of the whole tribe and they have brainwashed you and you're secretly doing some stuff in your sleep. <laughs> See, and this is this is what I love about conspiracy theories is that like, even it's though so you're joking, it's so believable. It's so close yeah. to believable. Well, and even though you're joking, it's like once someone is in, once someone believes something like that, they they can so easily. It's like it like you just you say something and they just do these mental gymnastics to be like to to yeah, justify why it's possibility. True. Yeah. Yeah, they because things like that, they're like, yeah, but maybe like you're in it, but like you don't know, but you've been in it since you were a kid and like you've been brainwashed and you don't like you don't know you're in it. <laughs> and so it just like it never stops. Totally. And <laughs> I've never really talked about conspiracy theories a lot. So it's a great conversation that I'm having. I really enjoying it. Uh, yeah. Joe Rogan on one of his, you know, in one of his episodes on his podcast, he mentioned that, you know, uh, what if aliens were always here like maybe a few of them and maybe what if they are experimenting on us and they saw how screwed up we have gotten <laughs> so they introduced this virus <laughs> again it's so close to that's believe, an interesting you know, one something that yeah you can actually believe on yeah, absolutely. And that like conspiracy theories always use elements of reality. Yeah. Like the the conspiracy that the moon landing was faked. There's this idea that it was done in a movie studio. You know, they yeah. always use things that are real and then they take it one step further. Um the one that I really love, my favorite conspiracy in the world is the flat earth conspiracy and there's there's a flat earth convention in Texas. So like next year, I think they're going to hold the Flat Earth Convention and I really want to go. <laughs> I have I have an English friend, like one of my friends in England, he wants to he wants to visit the US and do a road trip where all we do is visit like right wing militia groups and flat earthers and conspiracy groups and just like just be with these people and see like what sort of stuff they're saying. <laughs> <laughs> and so what's coming to my mind is I recently rewatched the whole Big Bang Theory uh, series. Have you watched it? Okay. The Big Bang Theory. Yeah, I hate it. I hate the Big Bang Theory. <laughs> it drives me insane. Sure. 
So, <laughs> Sheldon Cooper, the main character, is actually from Texas, and you just mentioned the, <laughs> the flat Earth okay. theory <laughs> convention yeah. in Texas. Kind of an irony. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a. Man. Sorry, sorry. What were you gonna say? No. There's a there's a video on YouTube. I mean, speaking of humor, there's a video on YouTube that you can look up called where they take the Big Bang Theory and then they take the laugh track away. So there's no laughter in the background. And it's literally just like people talking to each other. Like it's not funny at all. And it's like sometimes that's one of the things you don't realize is that like you're laughing because of the laugh track, because laughter is also yeah. a shared human experience. And you're not laughing. It's actually the same with Friends and Office. So the main difference between these two TV series is Friends have that laughter track, and right. if you you know like exclude that laughter track, Friends jokes might not be that funny. But why yeah. the Office is becoming like a new generation thing is because it doesn't use that laughter track, and it's actually damn funny. Yeah, and they have to be a lot more clever without the laughter track. Like the the Big Bang Theory is what a lot of people call lowest common denominator humor. Like it's mm. just, it's the lowest level of funny it can possibly be so that a lot of people watch it. Like um, Big Bang yeah. Theory, the most common place I see Big Bang Theory is not actually someone watching it, but it's something that's on in the background, which is another thing that drives me crazy. I don't understand why you would have a TV on in the background, it just like fractures your attention. But, I totally understand. Yeah. Same thing. <clears throat> so uh, let's talk a little more about aliens because I really want to talk to someone about aliens. <laughs> okay. Also because okay. I uh, also because like last week I rewatched Interstellar, so I'm just kind of in that zone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what are your thoughts? Yeah, you, there's you a lot. A lot of potential things that I think could be true. Um, I'm I'm not so I'm not so big on the idea that aliens have been here. Um, I do think it's ridiculous to think that we're alone in the universe because, like, the more I learn about how big the universe actually is, yeah, how, exactly. Like we can't, we we have nothing in our minds to conceive of how big the universe is. We have like the, even the idea of one light year and the universe being billions of light years across. Like yeah. the idea of one light year is more distance than we can possibly imagine. It's insane. So um, here's one idea that I have. <laughs> And I actually thought it today only in the morning. <laughs> yeah. What if, what if the whole, the whole uh, universe of Superman is real? The whole universe of Superman? Yeah. Okay. You, okay. You know, like maybe he's not here yet or maybe he came and went. Right. But what if there is, you know, like uh, aliens who are actually superhuman? Right. One possibility or second possibility you know, like we go to different galaxies to find out if there is aliens and we find like they are super weak than us. Right. And yeah, I think that, that that's going to be super depressing if, you know, aliens are super weak than us. <laughs> humanity right now is shit. <laughs> if you find someone even weaker than us, God bless us. 
<laughs> right. Well, yeah. And there's also, I mean, there's like the, the idea of like evolving until we have what we perceive as intelligence, there still could be sentient life in the universe that, you know, has evolved on the level of lizards and cats and dogs and dinosaurs, but is not contacting us. Those are still mm. terrestrial aliens. Um, but there are there are enough planets that could potentially support life that have the basic ingredients that we need on Earth that I think it is silly to think that we're alone. But I, yeah, I'm, I don't think, like, I have not been convinced by anything that I've seen that, like, mm -hmm. ancient cultures were visited by aliens. Um, but then again, how do you know? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I definitely <laughs> can't. <laughs> yeah, of course I can't say for certain. Um, Because if if we go by that theory that, you know, like, what if we are just kind of experiments for aliens, like they are experimenting on us right now and we are, you know, like uh, just one science project for one small alien, you know, <laughs> for his school project, how would even know that we are here? Well, yeah, but how are we allowed to talk about them right now without our heads exploding? Oh, interesting. So maybe they are just waiting, you know, like when we find out at that very moment, and that's the whole experiment is all about, like, you know, testing out when would they find out. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we could, we could also just be like a computer simulation. I think Elon Musk has talked about that. Um, but yeah, what do you, I mean, what do you think about aliens? What's your theory? <laughs> so, uh, I'm really curious in nature. So I do take up a lot of curious questions. Like what if, you know, we are just uh, like, like this one, what if there are aliens who are superior than us? Or yeah. what if there are aliens who are really inferior than us? Uh, or what if on Saturn we have aliens who don't need what we need to survive. Right. Well, I mean, Saturn, that would be impossible because like there's no solid surface on Saturn. They can't actually okay. stand. We need, we need solid surface. They might not. Right. So what, they're but just sort of like floating around in the, in the cloudy ether of the planet? So what we are, you know, uh, comparing or thinking about is basically based on what we have seen on Earth which is not really a great reference. It's, it's like one tiny piece in the whole universe. Right. It's really low point of reference. So what if there was, you know, like there were aliens on Pluto and we discarded Pluto as our, uh, you know, as a planet from the solar system and they are angry on us and then they are, you know, doing this Corona shit. It's yeah, really I mean, good if, theory. if really there good are theory. aliens, yeah. I mean, if there are <laughs> aliens on Pluto, they're living a horrible life. <laughs> Pluto is like, because Pluto is know? terrible. <laughs> Pluto is we like. We don't even know. So we yeah. think that we will need light to see each other. What if aliens want? Yeah, definitely true. Whatever science we, you know, like have is based on this one point of reference that is the Earth part or the people in it or the species in it, which is basically yeah. thousands or, you know, like a hundred thousand. So much more that could be possible. Yeah. And I'm, I really want to believe this theory that, you know, like there were aliens on Pluto and because we discarded it from our solar system, they get angry. And now they're kind of, you know, like uh, they, are, they spread that virus. That's what 
sitting on this planet <laughs> it's um, <a> really <laughs> yeah 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 well so that that like going back to the cult psychology there was this um this study done in the 1950s that i just found out about that i'm that i can't shut up about now <laughs> but it was there was this psychologist named leon festinger and okay. he he did a a psychological study of people who were in what we could call a doomsday cult right so like mm. their leader their leader told them that like because they were faithful they were going to be taken to a spaceship um and the spaceship was going to pick them up at midnight on this certain night right people like a couple hundred people met in this leader's backyard and people had like quit their jobs and sold their stuff and like left Net. their spouses yeah like and obviously spaceship doesn't come right <laughs> and then the My leader yeah <laughs> so and then the the leader the leader is like i'm so Sorry, like, you know, the, the message I got from the aliens, like the wires are crossed, the spaceship is coming on this day. So they all meet up, spaceship doesn't come. And the, the psychologist, Leon, his name is Leon Festinger. He, uh -huh. he, followed these, he followed these cult members and just kept asking them questions because he wanted to understand what is it that's going on in the mind of someone who believes something and when the whole world is telling them not to believe it, they continue doing it. And he started seeing that there's like what we would call the sunken cost, right? Like you've already put in so much yes. that you can't stop. Like you've, you've. <laughs> the interesting point about that is, uh, that's how, I don't remember who it was. Maybe it was Galileo who was, you know, kind of, uh, considered a criminal because he was talking about the uh, spherical nature of earth or whatever you know that earth right. is not flat yeah but he he was again going against the majority of people and right. he proved to be something of really valuable resource yeah. on the other hand we see these cult people <laughs> who are basically you know like so it's it's really amazing to see how you would probably not know what is sanity or what is insanity or what's totally stupid or what's going to be totally you know brilliant until it has come into existence yeah yeah i mean i think i think <laughs> we measure we measure insanity against what we value in society yeah um like <laughs> my dad said something really insightful a few years ago about how like sometimes he envies the insane right? Because they don't have to play by the same rules that we do. An insane yeah. person doesn't like, they don't have to show up at the same job every day for years and years mm. and years. And they still, because like our society has enough resources, they still have places they can go. They still survive. They don't have to work themselves to death. Um, and a lot of them get to exist in an alternate universe where they just believe things that we think are crazy, but obviously aren't crazy to them. Um, in certain ancient cultures, they would have been shamans and now like <laughs> we shun them. Hmm. Um, but yeah, sometimes like what we call insanity is just, 
I mean, there's there's something there's something deeply ingrained in like why we're afraid of asylums, why we think insane, insane asylums are haunted or why we're so terrified of them because culturally we're terrified of insanity because we we have to keep going we have to keep producing we have to keep providing for those who depend on us and if we go insane all of that goes away second thing is uh, we are also kind of afraid to talk about our mental health mm-hmm. is because you know we have that deep-rooted fear that if we tell them that we have something, you know, we are somewhat different than you. Right. You know, our community might abandon us. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the second you, the second you talk about feeling crazy, that kind of makes it real. And then you have to deal with it. I mean, that's, that's probably a lot of the work that you do, right? As a life coach. Yeah. Have you been through some mental illness in your life? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, depression runs in my family. Um, I am from the only stable. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so like when, so my immediate family is like the, the only part of my family that is still relatively stable. Like my family is the only one where my parents haven't been divorced um, other than my mom's parents, but they are, um, they're a case in what not to do. And like, so everything outside of me, my whole extended family is a case study in mental illness. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Okay. And there's there's a lot of a lot of stuff especially on my dad's side that okay. there's just a lot of like unresolved issues and suppression and depression and so yeah it definitely runs in my family and i definitely struggle with it and i think depression to me comes like i'm very lucky that i don't have I don't have, um, what's the word? Uh, like depression that. Clinical? That, yes, I don't have clinical depression. Got it, um, got it. My depression arises when I'm not aligning myself with my purpose and when I'm not acting in ways that I should be. Like when okay. I'm not, when I'm not working towards something positive and when I'm not, mm-hmm. when I'm not writing, I get depressed. Okay. Um, yeah. What, what, like, what does it look like to you when you're depressed? It looks like, I mean, pretty... Let, let me share, let me share my story. So you have some words yeah. to use in your as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I get like a touch of my first case of depression in 2016. Like I was, again, not clinically depressed, but I was on the verge of, you know, like on the borderline of being depressed. Uh, <clears throat> I would not get up from bed for days and days. I would get up, you know, to eat food, to, you know, go to washroom and stuff like that. But I'd rather lock myself up in my room, not talk to anyone and, you know, just watch something, eat something and that's it. Yeah. That, That was my kind of thing. Yeah, I would say for me, because, like, it's never been physically crippling for me but it is mentally 
Depression for me, rather than locking myself in my room, depression for me looks like locking myself in myself. Um, and there's this sort of there's this sort of automation process that takes over. Like mm -hmm. the way I've described it is, it's like I'm a ship, right? And mm -hmm. when I feel that depression is coming on, I know I'm about to go to a, through a storm. And so what I do in my mind is I go below the decks and I lock all the hatches mm -hmm. and I just sit there until the storm is over and then I can come out again. But it's very much for me, it's like, it's like there's an automation process going on that is running my mind for me and like running my life. Um, and I'm not actively participating in my own life. It's like watching myself from a distance. That's what, that's what, that's the form it takes for me. And then eventually like when I'm aligning myself with my purpose, when I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, when I'm eating right, exercising and writing, whether that's journaling or writing publicly, I yeah. come out of that. So uh, with me, you know, like my first, in during my first phase of depression and uh, I had my first anxiety attack. Mm -hmm. And after that, my anxiety continued, but because in depression, I became someone, you know, who I didn't identify with like, you know, staying low. I was like a pure 110% extrovert before that. Yeah. N now I'm, you know, like kind of an ambivert. I really need my space. And I like talking to people, but at the same time, I want my own space. And, you know, like being a mixture of both. So anxiety continued after that. On and right. off, it continued going on. And now I also know so that my state, like a lot of people, so, you know, again, a lot of people advise that, you know, when you're depressed or anxious, talk to people, it helps. With me, because, you know, like, again, I've gone through that stuff. I've taken therapy. I've done the work. I've done the healing part. So when I go through, the, you know, those anxiety attacks or anxiety moments again, my first uh, immediate reaction is I want to be left alone. Right. I want to take my time off. I, I will come out. I will take help if I need it. But i rather stay with myself. I, I don't like talking to anyone at that time. Yeah, yeah. I've, I think that, that usually doesn't work very well for me because- like, Everyone has yeah. different, you know, coping mechanisms. Like the way yeah. you cope will probably not the way I cope. Yeah, and I've, I've found personally that like when I'm, when I'm isolating myself during periods of mental illness, I tend to go a bit crazy because mm, like, I, I think, yeah, like you, life is a continual process of explaining the world and explaining yourself to yourself. Yeah. And if you're doing that in a vacuum and you're not getting an outside perspective, yeah. it's really hard to get like an accurate view of what's going on because whatever crazy stuff you come up, up with to explain how the world is to yourself, you can believe because you're the only one, like there's no oversight committee. There's no one telling you, no, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> totally relate to it. So uh, let's take the topic a little step back. It, it got really intense within a few minutes. <laughs> uh, it's called opening about... up with the Ponchu, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's what it's supposed to be. So uh, first of all, thank you so much for sharing. Because I understand yeah. it takes 
some guts to share this thing publicly uh, ha- uh do you like share your vulnerability in your uh, writings too like public writing absolutely yeah i mean there was there was a story i wrote and this is this is going to be very intense again if that's okay with you but sure sure Let, let's go let's go that road. there there was a story i wrote on medium i think it was back in december that didn't really take off or go anywhere um but it was very therapeutic for me to write about how when i was 19 this guy i had known for 2 weeks um called me as i was eating pancakes and asked me to say goodbye to his family for him and then stepped in front of a semi truck on the highway um okay yeah and and it was it was a really interesting lesson for me because i subconsciously have this need to be a caretaker and mm-hmm. i don't know why like mm-hmm. every relationship that i've had for the past 6 7 years has been with someone who comes from a broken home and i am like i'm very interested in people i'm very interested in how people get the way they are and the fact that i am interested in people makes me a very active listener which can be mm-hmm. intoxicating and it can mm-hmm. also attract the very worst kind of energy into my life yeah it can kind of attract people who are screwed up who necessarily who don't necessarily want to do anything about it yeah um which sort of leads to unloading and then can put me in bad situations like the one i just described like yeah. i knew that guy i knew that guy for 2 weeks and he called me right before he jumped in front of a semi truck <clears throat> why why did he do that why yeah um he was a veteran from the war in iraq and he just had a lot of issues and um he had been considering suicide for a long time and yeah just a natural progression that was unchecked and you know that was what was really hard about it what i went through and you know i am not still suffering because of it because i've come to a good understanding but i realized i realized then how important it is to make sure that the people you let into your life like if you are a person who expresses a lot of vulnerability and lets other people express a lot of vulnerability it is very important to make sure that there's a base level of i don't i don't know what you would call it like competence with people that you let into your life okay Okay. Uh yeah, we can talk about the technical terms later but you continue. Well, yeah, that's that's <laughs> that was it. That was yeah. Okay, so uh it, it basically what ends up happening is what happened with me uh last month. So, here's what happened with me last month in April 2021. I was really really I don't know, at a loss of my energy. you know i was really struggling with my energy levels and i was taking one day off every week so it was not like i'm working 24 by 7 but what actually happened was and that's how you know like my doctor explained it 
is that I'm going through compassion fatigue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, fully aware of this. Need, so by taking some time off, I actually need time off from all the human interactions. Like right. Not just what my clients talk about, but all human interaction all together. And because yeah. I'm, a, I'm a life coach, I work with people with their anxiety, with their confidence, with their, you know, uh, self-care or stuff around that, especially emotions. Uh, empathy and compassion is like the prerequisite of uh, helping them, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm recovering from that. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I understood what you mentioned that, you know, uh, this is probably you might have all also experienced. Have you experienced it yet? Yes. And the, the thing that, the thing that always makes me hit a level of compassion fatigue is the times in my life when I'm very plugged into the, the news. Like if I'm, if I'm not limiting, uh, no, I mean, I don't watch news. Like I, and I, I go back and forth. I think we have this very dangerous narrative about the idea of being informed because we we tell ourselves that it's important to be informed as citizens of a democracy, which it is, but we're not careful about the way we inform ourselves. And if we I don't... Say, take... I was thinking about this, you know, like again, uh, one or two days ago only, that the one great habit that I implemented in my life <laughs> and I'm yeah. really proud to say it is that I stopped reading newspapers like yeah. six years ago. That was yeah. the first time I, I, five, six years ago when I had that depression phase, the first thing I did was, so I, I would, you know, like pick up the newspaper and it would be filled with negativity. Somebody, right. somebody's going raped, somebody's being cheated on, somebody is killing someone, all that kind of crazy stuff. Yeah. And I've been really peaceful just by doing this one thing. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I, th- I think the important thing is to make sure you're getting it from sources that aren't trying to exploit your anger. Because that's that's another thing we don't realize is that like news causes us to feel fear. It causes us to feel unsafe. And another thing we forget is that most news, other than the publicly funded ones, is funded yep. by advertising. So because it's funded by private advertising money, we like they want us to feel a certain way so that we continue to buy things. It's not a pure like here's what's going on in the world. Yeah, so I remember one case where Washington Post I guess wrote something negative about Jeff Bezos. Yeah. And he kind of bought that newspaper, like the whole company. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah, Yeah. it actually makes sense, you know, like if you are that person. So I don't know, I'm really uh, uninformed in that sense, maybe, but I do not vote. And the reason is because I feel it's rather best for me to not vote than to vote without having any information. Right. And also because I have been I have joined the cult named James Altucher and he doesn't vote. So, <laughs> not kidding, okay. but he was kind of an inspiration that uh, I learned this from him that, you know, like cut down on news. 
and right. okay you know like it's totally fine if you do not know what democracy is yeah people are still going to continue and trust me uh, one of the reason why i do not vote is because i don't have the right to get angry on government no matter how crazy it gets right and i think like <laughs> even like even if even if you really want to participate in democracy and like i i vote because i believe i have a responsibility to like as a citizen of my <laughs> democracy even if you really want to participate in it like you don't have to give your outrage to the 24 hour news cycle every day and that we like we were talking about compassion fatigue like you know human being can wrap their mind around the scope of all human suffering in real time there's too much like we can't actually feel compassion for all of the things that are going on in the world and trying to is actually a disservice to what's right in front of us to the suffering that goes on in our own communities um and so even if like you are determined to be informed you don't have to be plugged into news every single day and sharing articles on social media in like a flurry of rage you can live your life and then when an election comes along you can spend a few hours doing research and you will still understand what's been going on i i really i i do think that it's a really brilliant way of you know consuming news by making sure that you know like you're understanding the credible sources at the same time you are understanding why you are consuming the news yeah if you are feeling that you know like voting is your responsibility uh sure vote and then then again uh, consume news with that perspective that i want to vote i need to vote and i want to see whom to vote and why to vote this person yeah Yeah, I think I actually wrote a whole article about this for Publicis. Um wow. about how about about compassion fatigue and about how overconsumption of news leads to not just unhappiness but also I don't think I don't think you are a better citizen or like you're going to make a better voting decision because you've given the world your outrage. I think there's this this idea that we owe the world our outrage and we don't. I think that's ridiculous. So, uh what do you think where the world is heading on to the plus and minus, the positives and negatives? Really small questions, right? <laughs> Wait. One small question at a time. <laughs> okay, so so the question is like what do I think are the positives and negatives about where we're headed in the world? Okay. Um positives would be that innovation and technology are starting to emerge that can solve the problems that we've created. Um mm -hmm. like there's a lot of there's a lot of really interesting things like I always put a positive news article in my newsletter every week like just to fight yeah. back against this negativity and one of the one of the articles I found the other day when I was doing research was that this fully automated ocean cleaning boat has just been invented that's powered oh. by yeah that's powered by solar energy wind energy and the plastic that it picks up 
Ooh. Yeah. So like we're, we're coming up with amazing innovations, but we're still, so I would say we, we come up with technology to fix the problems that we go through, but those are more often bandages rather than large scale action yeah. to change the way that we live. Like, cause yeah. human behavior, human behavior doesn't really change. Um, and we, the majority of us tend to live a certain way. And then there are some of us that fix the problems that the majority of us create. Um, and that just seems to be, it's sort of like the 80, 20 rule, right? Like 80% of people cause problems, 20% of people fix them. And there's always going to be more problems than there are people to fix them. <laughs> Veganism is one of the things I don't yeah. understand. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess, I don't know, like just looking back at all the lessons of history, I don't know if we change and I don't think that human nature has changed. I think that we just have better technology nowadays. And with, with your perspective, I could, you know, like just add a tangent to that. Uh, what, I, what I think is happening is it's kind of a race. It's, you know, kind of a sprint race that, mm -hmm. You know, on one end, uh, we are running to save ourselves. On the second end, we are consuming up our resources and stuff. So I totally right. believe <laughs> interstellar is something that might happen. You know, yeah. like we might run out of food and stuff. Uh, yeah. So it, it will be an interesting race to watch. Like, will we figure out how to save ourselves first or will we end up consuming resources first? Yeah, I think if that scenario were to happen, I think what would end up happening is that the very rich would survive and most people would die. So even um, the very rich would survive for how long? Um, well, it depends. It depends on how screwed up things get, right? Because like we see, we saw at the beginning of coronavirus that the lack of movement actually help yeah. the environment, right? So let's say some scenario like this happens. We run out of resources. The world is still run on oil and there's not a lot of food. So as long as we haven't screwed up the atmosphere and the basic structure of the earth, your average billionaire can go into a bunker for about 20 years, billions of people die, the earth still corrects, takes care of itself, and then the very rich can reemerge and start repopulating the earth. Hmm. I see. Uh, but then again, uh, if you are very rich, there's a really small amount of possibility that you'll be able to do the labor. What labor? Labor to, you know, like uh, it, it's required to repopulate the earth. Not just about, you know, like making babies, but so yeah. much different stuff that's required to repopulate the earth. Right. But let's say, I mean, let's say... I don't know, um, a million people are rich enough to survive. Like you've been, you've been in a bunker for 20 years growing your own food. Like you can make a self-sustaining bunker that like cleans the air that you breathe and like you have UV lights to grow your own food. Then you reemerge. It doesn't matter in terms of like having enough people to repopulate the earth. If you have a couple million people who have survived, like you live in a paradise. 
at that point. You still yeah. have enough resources. There's still there's still enough stuff. And if the basic structure of the earth hasn't changed and those couple million people can switch over to renewable energy, they'll be fine. So we're so, uh, we're yeah, we're yeah. either headed we're either headed towards that or we manage to all live on the earth and we somehow fix the problems that we're going through. But I don't think I don't think we would face an extinction level event. But then again, I'm not an expert on this. <laughs> this is just so uh, actually, uh, there's a really fun TikTok video that was going viral that, uh, you know, so one person is uh, like shooting the video and saying, uh, so we are the what what's the word? Give me a moment. Let me remember that let me remind myself so you know like kind of we are the uh, intergalaxy association okay so earth you are here you you want to uh, so you know like kind of having an interview with earth so uh, yeah so you're not even an interplanetary species yet like not even mars which is just around the corner <laughs> and so okay okay so uh, you have people who are dying of hunger do you have enough food? Yes. But why are they dying of hunger? So do you want me to put logistics here? So, you know, like a really interesting conversation about that, that like genuinely Mars is, if we look at the vast nature of universe, Mars is really around the corner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and we still haven't figured out a way to be there without actually, you know, kind of consuming up a lot of resources. Elon Musk is doing a lot of things already. But then again, it will take probably like one or two decades before the first, you know, community of people goes to the Mars. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if Mars is our salvation. I mean, that, that is another scenario where the very rich survive. If we totally screw up Earth, the resources required to make Mars livable only belong to a very select group of people if we even figure out how to do that or if we get alien help you never know right yeah because <laughs> i mean like in in hollywood movies it's always something like there's a lottery to decide who gets to survive and who gets to go on the spaceship and that's not how it would go <laughs> based on the whole history of humanity it would just be <laughs> the people with all the resources would peace out and be like all right good luck with the burning earth <laughs> Not necessarily, to be honest, all the resources might not mean money only. It might also mean having doctorate in something like biology or something like that. Right. And generally, you have to shall be I, in a pretty... So shall I like fill the forms to be a doctorate in biology? I think, <laughs> I think you should. Question. Yeah. Well, because I mean, you also like, you have to be at a pretty high level of wealth or be wicked intelligent to even get to the level of being a doctor in biology. <laughs> like you either need family wealth or you're lucky enough to be so smart that you were discovered as a kid and someone pays for your education, but that's. Yeah, totally makes sense. Uh, crazy conversation. I never imagined I'd be doing a YouTube interview where I'll be talking to someone about aliens and earth extinction. <laughs> really crazy stuff so yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway coming back to you know the creativity part so uh, if, if i have to ask you what, what's your 
kind of routine or habits around creativity writing and stuff yeah absolutely um i'm still learning because it's been it's only been about six months since i've been writing with the intent to publish okay so i'm very i'm very much still learning what works for me and i went through the busiest time of my life in april it was really funny like you were talking about that that low creative energy in april i went through the same thing and apparently mm -hmm. our friend julian in the group did too yeah 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 <laughs> and so i don't know if it's something in the air um, I did do a tarot reading at the beginning of this year and it predicted that April would be my low point. But anyway, it's neither here nor there. <laughs> it's gone now. Yeah. But in terms of like routine, um, I, I write mostly on the weekends because I have to get up at 6 a.m. to be at school every day during the weekdays. Um, and I also remember once waking up at 6. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it like, it has to be for me. Um, sometimes it's what I would call stolen time. I've found that I'm, yes. I'm very, very, very productive when I'm supposed to be doing something else. <laughs> those are, <laughs> those are my best times. And I think psychologically, like I have a very rebellious spirit. And so I often, yeah. <laughs> I often find that I am at my best when I'm at work. So do you, by the way, uh, do you know what uh, like a rebel means in terms of like when we talk about in psychological terms? I would just say a rebel to me would be um, anyone who aligns themselves against the society they live in. So uh, according to Gretchen Rubin, who is the author of uh, The Happiness Project, uh, she mentions uh, four classes of people according to external and internal expectations. Mm -hmm. So people who resist both internal and external expectations, they are rebels. Mm, okay. Yeah, I mean, that I would put myself in that category, certainly. <laughs> because I would want myself to work out every day, but do I? <laughs> 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 yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, yeah, and that's, that's always really hard for me, because I have to, I have to trick myself into being healthy a lot of the times because that like, yeah. that, that rebellion against the internal is endlessly annoying. Because <laughs> you just like, you know what you're supposed to do. But then, like, you're like, well, my past self told me to do this. My present self doesn't necessarily want to do this. My past self doesn't know my present self. <laughs> totally, totally. That that actually makes sense. And <laughs> uh, it's just a uh, good kind of uh, awareness to have. So based on those four, uh, so those are four tendencies based on internal and external expectations. One of them is questioner that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, they uh, fulfill their internal expectation, but they always resist external expectation. So if you expect anything from them, they'll always question like, why, 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 all that kind of stuff. Some right. people are really great in terms of external expectation. So right. they are those people who work amazing with a coach. Right. So if I'm expecting something from you, like you hired me as a coach, and I expect you to meditate every day. And you are that person who 
you know thrive that external expectation you will work just because somebody else is expect, expecting that from you right so amazing awareness to have yeah what were we talking about before that your creative uh, habit yes yeah yeah so i've i found that like a lot of my a lot of my writing has been done on my planning period when i'm at work like cuz i get a i get a <laughs> class period to plan and so that during the week is where i do most of my writing and then on the weekend i sort of i sit down every morning um just with a cup of coffee and write out the ideas and then i hand write everything because i found that that makes me a lot more focused like when i'm writing an article or i'm trying to get my thoughts down if i'm doing it on a computer my attention is just fractured um i often end up i i end up just like surfing websites what's funny too is i mean like <laughs> every time i sit down to write i end up cleaning my house first <laughs> ah that's a ritual yeah so there's this this sort of just principle of distraction and then eventually when i have nothing left to distract me i sit down and do the writing um and i think that there are a lot of beautiful things that come out of boredom and our society is trying to eliminate it like that we are so entertained by so many things all the time we're never bored and we never have that time to like figure out what we're really thinking or to sit down and write out our ideas because we're never bored our phones are entertaining us all the time have you read about dopamine detox yes yes i have yeah tell me more i wanted to ask this to someone <laughs> enlighten well, me well yeah i mean so i um i always like when i'm doing my writing days on the weekend i wake up and my phone is already off i've turned it off the night before cuz i don't need the alarm and i don't turn it on until probably the afternoon um and it's the same way that i think of intermittent fasting so like on weekdays because i have to go to school and because i need the alarm i wake up and i look at my phone but on weekends because i can control the scenario a lot more i yeah. Now and just my phone in general like all notifications are always off it is always on silent i've turned off all my my read receipts on all my apps because that causes nothing but trouble and um so i yeah i keep myself pretty distant from my phone in general i always keep it in black and white unless i'm watching a video so that it's not mm -hmm. as enticing to look at um So I would say every day I do a dopamine fast and then those days that I can actually turn it off and go the whole day without looking at it are always really really good because I end up having those periods of boredom and that usually creates something beautiful that's when I actually do the thinking that matters. Mm. So how would if somebody wants to try this dopamine detox stuff like that uh what are certain things that you can start with so keep your phone off but don't leave it in the same room especially if you're trying to do some sort of work there was this this really cool study that i wrote about again in publishes that was done a few years ago that showed that 
So basically, these researchers had people solve a series of logic-based puzzles. Okay. And they had three groups. There were groups who had, there was a group who had left their phone out in a different room. There was a group who had their phone in the same room, but like in a bag next to them. And there was a group that left their phone off, but face down on their desks. Mm -hmm. um, the proximity of your phone gives you less brain power. Um, oh. like the, yeah, like the group who had their phone in the same room, even in a bag, did worse than the group whose phone was outside of the room. And the group who could see their phones, even if it was off, had like seven to 10% less mental processing power. Um, because even just the presence of it, you're so used to it being this entertaining thing that yeah. the presence of it is, is drawing some of your creative energy, no matter what. Um, and so, mm. yeah, the most mm. important thing, especially if you're trying to do deep work is have it off in a different room. Never tried it. And it, it sounds like something I would want to try, like maybe start by one hour you know, like our 90 minutes sessions. Yeah. Another one, um, I use an app on my computer called self-control and self-control blocks websites that you've put on the block list. And there is nothing that you can do to get on those websites. Even if you delete the app, it still blocks them until the time that oh. you've set is over. So it's like, you can set it for like two hours to block like Twitter and LinkedIn and Medium. And, and so that's what I, yeah, and WhatsApp. So that's, that's what I do um, when I'm typing up my articles. And yeah, like you can, you can delete the application and it still will not let you open the websites until the time has elapsed. It's amazing. Mm, interesting. Something I really need to try. It's, it's, yeah. So I was doing a lot of deep work in October, but mm. since then, because again, a lot of things have been happening around me, I have kind of lost the intentionality of doing the work itself. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Uh, that brings to the topic because we were discussing that some, some time back about, you know, the dark side of self-help industry. Mm -hmm. yeah um specifically what so we were discussing in the community about you know the dark side of self-help uh coaches or self-help industry that you need to sure. be really careful and you know all that goes a little against my business side but why not <laughs> well yeah fun. i think i mean there's there's several reasons you need to be careful like because there's, there's no real accreditation process. And yeah. we live in a time where um, we, we live in a time that's amazing for people like us, where it's not necessarily like academic achievement that creates trust. It's like, yeah. it can just be the fact that you are out there doing the writing, like on an open source platform like Medium, yeah. Anybody can write anything um, yeah. and they haven't necessarily gone through some sort of training to become who they yeah. are. Yeah. Um, so that's one reason you need to be careful. 
I think toxic positivity is definitely something to avoid too. I think like our culture of our culture of success and the way we explain success and the way we talk about like hustle culture tends to just sort of shift blame for lack of success onto the individual. Yeah, yeah. An another very toxic thing that you need to be aware of. If you think that like, that you are not Jeff Bezos because of your own inherent laziness, then that's ridiculous. Like you, you have to realize that people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, while they have worked hard, have also experienced an incredible amount of luck. And that there are yeah. millions and millions and millions of people who have tried to be them and have failed. And it also has a lot of things to do with, you know, uh, baseless or blind try to be a part of 1% instead of being yeah. a part of top 10%. Yeah. Because even if you are a part of top 10%, you're still living a really great life. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and that... Another thing I can't stand about the self-help self industry is that it creates endless dissatisfaction. Like, there... And I'm seeing now, this was very much not a component of self-help when I was growing up or coming of age, but I'm seeing now much more of a component of gratitude and we're recognizing the importance of gratitude, but yeah. certain self-help gurus are still very much about like, you need more, you always need more. You can always be hustling. You need to spend all of your energy trying to um, become more and more and more and get more. And like the, that discounts that the best moments in your life are the times when you're like in a hammock by the river with someone that you love. You know, like there's, if you yeah. don't make time for those human moments and you spend your whole life hustling, I mean, there's the class, like, I think it's, it's fairly common knowledge now that nobody on their deathbed says, I wish I made more money yeah. and deep relationships and the people that you love will be available to you whether you're hustling or not, and the more you hustle, the less time you're spending with them. So I actually loved, uh, again, so what I, what I think is because I'm a really deep part of this self-help industry, uh, one thing that I really believe in is uh, most of the things become toxic when we consider them in absolutes instead of being in relatives. Yes, yeah. So, uh, Again, when you are talking about hustling to those people who are, you know, like uh, hiding behind a curtain or who are actually being just lazy is actually really positive advice. But if you're talking mm -hmm. that to someone who is already doing a lot of work and you're putting more pressure on that person that, you know what, you can do a lot more, you can do a lot more. It yeah. becomes totally toxic. Like It's right. actually same as oxygen. So if I, you know, kind of... Uh, kidnaps you and put you in a oxygen tank like filled with oxygen it's actually big that that's called oxygen toxification something like that that it yeah. will actually actually become toxic so uh, i really uh, because you were mentioning it uh, around you know the success part uh, again maybe the person is not right <laughs> grant cardone but mm -hmm. his 
one advice on you know the success part i really loved his book uh, be obsessed or be average yeah and he mentions that success is not a choice it's a responsibility so just imagine if you were earning 10x of what you are earning right now you would be able to serve a lot more mm-hmm. and i love that piece of advice it kind of you know like motivates you internally that you know what maybe it's true that if i want to serve more because a lot of people and then again it needs to be taken with a pinch of salt you know like it needs to be relative and not absolute but yeah what if i was just earning a little more because i want to serve more yeah i mean so i can't stand grant cardone the guy drives me insane i totally under- everything that's why <laughs> yeah. that's what i said you know like it i totally agree that the guy might yeah. not be right but this one metaphor i yeah. really love And I mean, I've done a fair amount of research on Grant Cardone because I like I want to be informed on the gurus who are out there. Yeah, yeah. And that's a great perspective. The idea of wanting to earn more money to serve more yeah. is yeah. beautiful. And I don't see Grant Cardone performing a lot of service. like if he's thinking of his his if of his hustle culture sales course selling thing as a service i think that's ridiculous um <laughs> i haven't i haven't seen any articles about grant cardone creating charities or using his wealth to help others um and i think the 10x rule puts you in an i think it's the same thing i mean i think it puts you in an ever consuming mindset because there's always 10x more where do you stop where do you so, know when you have enough yeah exactly based on that point what so i have written about it earlier that i feel life is about balancing a lot of things and you know you define how much balance it will be will it be 50 50 or 70 30 or 90 10 so one of the things that i feel you know one needs to balance in order to live peacefully and meaningfully is balancing improvement and acceptance so yeah. self improvement and self acceptance right so improvement to you know what i want to level up and acceptance that i'm really comfortable where i am yeah yeah and i think so one of the one of the things and i i told this to the group the other day i think like you have to look at how much a guru is charging too cuz if you're like if you're going to a tony robbins event or you're going to a grant cardone event you are going because of the power of positive group psychology which yeah. is something that you can get at a concert or something that you can get in a really positive church if you're able to find one and both of those cost way less than $8000 so i'll give you real time case studies <laughs> yeah. uh, psychologists in india normal psychologists are charging really less for psychotherapy coaching is a luxury coaching is not a necessity therapy is a yeah. necessity right mm-hmm. so people who had non clinical anxiety who worked with me versus who worked with psychotherapists who mm-hmm. again you know like on the same issues of non clinical anxiety I've seen people get more results with me. 
Uh, again, mm-hmm. not me being egocentric, me being, you know, like coming from a coaching thing. Right. One main reason what I found out has been because they paid a lot more. Yeah. The moment they paid me, the moment we had our first session, they were totally committed to the whole call. They wanted to make sure that they're, you know, like getting enough ROI from the whole program. Yeah. And you're working one-on-one with people. You're not you're not yeah. standing in front, you're not like standing in front of a crowd of people with a light show <laughs> yelling about success i think that's that, a very that, different that, scenario <laughs> that's a totally different scenario but then again you know like i'm kind of again you know researching or uh, observing the impact of spending more money even on the same thing yeah because it increases your commitment level to manifold and here's the truth most of the advice is available on internet for free <laughs> but yeah. how much of us actually you know like work on those things but when we buy a course we you know at least there's enough commitment level then again you mentioned that you know like we have already stepped into this whole ocean so we you know like rather move a few steps more yeah and i think i mean i think it's an 80 20 rule thing as well um because yeah. like 20% of us are consuming that knowledge and using it to rephrase it to 80% of people. <laughs> like, totally even though, yeah, that. yeah, that knowledge is available on the internet for free, certainly. Um, but yeah, like you said, most people aren't going to do that. And there's something about a really charismatic person like Tony Robbins or like um, the Guru podcast I just listened to, this guy named James Arthur Ray. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think so. This um, the podcast turned me on to something. So the the story is there's this guru named James Arthur Ray. He was a mm-hmm. part of the he was in the Secret. Remember that? Did you ever watch the Secret? Uh, I've read the book a couple of times. Okay, so the movie is hilarious. It is the most <laughs> like it's the cheesiest, most ridiculous like campy thing you've ever seen there's like there's like flash scenes from history like these really big dramatic orchestral music like you're going into battle <laughs> mm. um the trailer maybe I'm, I'm kind of getting the visuals now yeah yeah and so that this this guy james arthur ray like he was one of the people in the one of the experts who was interviewed in the movie and mm-hmm. then he was um, he was on Oprah, and he built this whole following, and he started doing events just like any self help guru. Became a millionaire, had a house in California, like a mansion, um, mm-hmm. and he started a retreat in Sedona, in Arizona, where he like he tried to do a sweat lodge, which is a like an old okay. Native American tradition. But mm-hmm. he was running it not as a sweat lodge because like the the indigenous community has been very outspoken since this event happened that what okay. he constructed was an embarrassment to the idea of a sweat lodge because that's a very spiritual mm-hmm. thing for the indigenous community. Um, he was doing like a two hour heat endurance challenge, almost like a sauna. And he, okay. put, like, 50, he put 50 people in the sweat lodge and two of them died. Oh. Um, and since then, the family of one of them created this charity that it, it's called Seek Safely. 
Um, and <laughs> like I remember you shared the link and it's it just a tab opened in one of you know my browsers. I just yeah. want to sign up to that. Well, because it's it's free and for people like us, it's very important. All it is is just like it's a pledge that we will that we will use the trust that people have in us responsibly. Because like I'm still very much in the self-help field, as you are too, based on all the writing that I've done. Yeah. And it's a very intimate thing. I mean, people place a lot of trust in you. Yes. And that can go very wrong. So that, I mean, I signed the pledge and then like when I have a website, there's like a code for a digital badge that you can put up that says that you're like a seek safely practitioner. Um, and I think it's a win-win, but it, the, since, since um, their daughter died, the family who has created seek safely has gone to like Tony Robbins and some of the most popular self-help gurus and tried to get them to sign this and most of them haven't. Oh, okay. <clears throat> Understand. And so interesting, you know, like the way you mentioned, so uh, whenever I'm working with a client and uh, the more I went into this life coaching, so the difference, a really big difference in life coaching and any other medical field like psychotherapy or psychiatry is uh, the entry barrier to life coaching is really nil. Like you can call yeah. yourself life coach today, right? Right. And what happens is a lot of people who are going to talk to you, they will not have any negative issues with it. Mm -hmm. But there's a good possibility that someone who is clinically depressed or clinically anxious might get some negative result by working with you. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So uh, there's this common practice that when, uh, you know, like when you're signing a contract as a life coach, uh, you sign a contract, you know, when you sign up a client that uh, to make sure to clarify on both hands that uh, coaching is not supposed to be an alternative to psychotherapy or psychiatry. Right. And like it's, it's written in my contract as well that and if you are already on uh, psychiatric health or if you're already taking psychotherapy, uh, please make sure that you take permission from your therapist or your psychiatrist th uh, that, you know, they allow you to take coaching with me. That kind of makes trust on both hands. It gives them validation as well that I understand that my job is not to give them therapy or my job is not to help them with the psychiatric needs. My job is to help them with the surface level or a little deeper issues, but not super deep issues that psychotherapists do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really important to underscore. You know, you're saying like, I don't have the answers for everything <laughs> and I can make your life a little bit better. Um, yeah, I think it's really important to approach it from that perspective um, hey, rather than... Yeah, rather here's than... the deal. Yeah, yeah. So I actually recently talked to a person who, uh, who went to psychotherapy and she actually didn't... She got like zero results working with a therapist. Mm -hmm. And when I talked with her, like it, the call went for like maybe one hour. And I discovered that she didn't need a therapist in the first place. What she mm -hmm. needed was a coach like me. 
a habit coach or you know like a person right. who could help them with goal setting with you know productivity with habit building and that kind of validated my idea that you know there is not one pill for everything well sure and i think so something that's also important to state i really don't think therapy is for everyone um and the reason i think that yeah. is because the the point of therapy is to allow you to basically to deal with society and <laughs> if you are yeah. like if if you are spending all your effort trying to survive and align yourself with a society that is very deeply fractured and broken um i don't think that's necessarily always healthy either um so yeah i mean i think there are different scenarios but yeah like you said anyone can call themselves a life coach um so you have to be yeah. very very careful because anyone who's decently intelligent can get online, write up a couple articles, build trust, find a couple people and get them to pay them money. Anybody who's a charismatic speaker can find people who will pay them money. Uh yeah, the very first thing that we need to be again careful about who we are taking advice from. Yeah. And a great thing about coaching is you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. and probably coaches are not the smartest people in the room but they're smart enough to ask good questions yeah absolutely uh anyway so uh, this is something that uh, was on my mind for the last few days when i saw so what happened with that one person when she worked with a therapist for like you know 3 weeks and her major issue was she wanted to uh, you know like uh make better habits productivity and you know all that kind of stuff or better yeah. goal setting and so therapy was like 100% ineffective to her ineffective right. i don't know what the word so anyway uh, so she mentioned to me that you know like so the therapist would continue asking her like you know like let's talk about your past let's talk about your past and she was like i don't have anything to talk about in my past like it's totally fine i lived a okay life in the past right so uh yeah really fascinating to see how you know so even in the non clinical anxiety part it's really fascinating to see how a coach will take it further versus how a therapist will take it further anyway coming back to you <laughs> uh uh you're a teacher do you teach geography i actually do i co-teach a geography class um uh-huh. why so because uh, it's one of the subjects that i don't have like a lot of interest in my okay. geography is like not really black yeah <laughs> so uh, <laughs> what some of the really interesting facts of geography that you are really interested in i mean the most interesting fact about geography to me is culture because i'm endlessly fascinated that's i mean most of the traveling i've done most of the journaling that i've done when i'm traveling as i look back has been around the idea of culture um i'm i'm really really fascinated by the different ways people live in different parts of the world and the way that your culture makes you in certain ways um mm-hmm. 
And I think that's something we can't really escape. We are all beholden to what we come from, um, no matter how much we question it. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in, that was the reason I applied to Nepal when I went to the Peace Corps was because I grew up in the most individualistic centered society on earth. And I wanted yeah. to know what was it like to live in a country where community is more valued. Um, and unfortunately was evacuated after seven weeks and didn't really get to un answer that question for myself. Why? But, why? Why after seven weeks? What happened? COVID. Oh, so it was like really recently. Yeah. So, well, this was, this was January to March of 2020. Mm. I was in, I was in Nepal training for the Peace Corps and I was supposed to spend two and a half years living in Nepal. And oh. yeah, but we got it. We got evacuated. Um, but there were a lot of things like, like everyone, my family, like I was in a small village ish area and mm -hmm. everyone my family had known and loved with the exception of a few people who were studying abroad lived within like a five minute walk. Mm, um, okay. And it was a very close community and that's just not something that I grew up in and not something that I'm used to. Mm, okay. Okay. Um, also like when I was in Colombia and I started talking to Colombian people and realizing like how passionate they are about life. Um, Colombia is consistently one of the happiest countries in the world. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to go spend a month traveling there. And one of the reasons I did, I, I mean, obviously they're not very happy right now. Um, but <laughs> there, there's happy like, right now? <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there's just widespread protesting right now and a lot of riots going on. Um, but, but yeah, actually, I want, is, is there a country in the world right now who's happy? <laughs> um yeah i think it's varying levels right and there's there's something called the world happiness index that ranks countries yeah, based yeah, on yeah. happiness yeah. and so yeah. i i want to visit the top countries on the world happiness index and i've already been to a couple of them like thailand and colombia denmark, denmark is in the top i guess yeah denmark is up there and costa rica is up there um and i'm oh. going to be going to costa rica this summer Okay. Costa Rica is in North America? Central America. So it's um it's down below Mexico, like in that thin strip of land that goes from North to South America. <laughs> Do you see it? Got it's it. right here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Got it. So uh, does it come to North American, uh, you know, continent or South America? Um, what do you mean? Like does... So like I mentioned, I'm terrible at geography, but what I understand is there is one North America continent and one South America continent. So does it come to North America continent? No, Costa Rica is in the strip of land between both. So what's the continent uh, of this country? Um, it, it's called Central America because it doesn't really fit into South but or Central North America. Central America is not a continent. Yeah, so I suppose it would be South America, but it's just referred to as Central America. Mm, okay, um, okay. Yeah, but yeah, so I'm going to be going there this summer and staying there for a month as I get like my writing business going. 
And I'm really interested in that question. I'm really interested in why people are happier certain places than they are in other places. And like, what is it about the way that certain cultures live that makes people miserable versus what makes them happy? So there's this one book called, uh, what's the name? Uh, Hoga, I guess, the word. Uh, it, it's Danish word. Mm-hmm. And it, it basically means, uh, I don't know. So it's a really colorful book. <laughs> First of all, mm-hmm. it's a colorful book. And it yeah. basically means the power of Hoga, I guess, uh, the Hoga is spelled as H-Y-G-G-E. Mm-hmm. And it basically means, you know, like creating a warm and uh, inviting space. Yeah, yeah. I remember this. So it's, it's you know, like maybe... Uh, uh, lighting up some candles or throwing some, you know, a uh, good perfume in your surrounding and, you know, creating that warm and inviting experience. And so the, the, the question I was going to ask is, how does it differ when you read a book versus when you visit a place to find answer to your question? Oh my gosh. I mean, it's, it's the difference between your friend telling you a story and you living a story. I mean, it's, it's, it's because always. Let, let, me, let me elaborate, you know, the question. Uh, yeah. One thing is what I have seen around myself is because of this internet and globalization era, a yeah. lot of originality is kind of going away, fading away. Yeah. For example, I am a lot more connected to uh, US TV series than to you know like indian tv series yeah so but if you if i read a book about indian tv series it will be quite authentic and you know like quite uh i don't know you you got the point yeah i think so the difference is always going to be huga is one aspect of danish culture like you yeah. you can read all about huga you can implement that lesson in your life you can take it but if you go to denmark it's not like all the danes are sitting around in log cabins with candles yeah. and fuzzy slippers all the time it's yeah. just one one piece it's one piece that works well that's the difference between yeah. a book and seeing a culture cuz any culture mm-hmm. is still going to have people who are miserable any culture is still going to have people who are screwing other people over. People across the world are fundamentally human. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think the like the difference between the book and experiencing the culture is it's always going to be the living example versus one piece of a culture that may work well applied across a different culture. Mm. And what was the most fascinating thing you got in Nepal? Um, deeper connection to spirituality. Like I think, how the well, did you join a cult? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, deep like so. Growing up in a Western culture, we tend to be very obsessed with logic. Like yes. we think that. We think that we can sort of logic our way into happiness, and we think that we can logic our way out of spiritual connection. Um, like the atheism. It kind of make, yeah, it makes me wonder if I was born in the wrong continent. I have like a soul <laughs> of a Westerner. 
not kidding <laughs> yeah well um i mean logic doesn't always work logic doesn't actually like apply to yeah. every situation um and trying to only apply situations with logic it's it you don't get the whole picture and so i think like that deeper connection to spirituality that i got when i was living in nepal was seeing that um well there's a lot of things i disagree with about hinduism um one of the things that what's that me too yeah one of the things that was really interesting to me about it and that i really liked is that it's a very personal and family practice and people aren't necessarily going to a church every week like the way that i grew up um it's very ingrained in life and so that 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 opened me up to the possibility of applying spirituality in my own life and letting my life be a spiritual practice rather than like spirit and God are over here and life is over here. Yeah. Yeah. So then again, you know, like uh, I really love this quote by uh, Gabriel Bernstein. It's yeah. not a quote. She was actually talking on a podcast. She is a spiritual teacher. I really admire her. Gabriel Bernstein and she mentions in one of the podcasts I was listening to recently uh, she said I didn't want to develop a spiritual practice like I'm dedicating 10 minutes a day to my meditation and stuff I wanted to live a spiritual life ah <laughs> nice i love that right so that creates a lot yeah. of difference like it's it's great you want to meditate for 10 minutes a day you want some silence great but the, at the same time every 30 minutes or every 10 minutes or every 5 minutes are you feeling connected with yourself mm. there's a lot of spirituality as i understand is reconnection with yourself reconnection with yeah. love or god or something and i think connection to the world around you i mean i think spirituality like i don't when i feel a connection to the divine every time i talk to a squirrel or look at a tree so um, uh funny thing uh a lot of people use different words for this some people use the word god uh, I'll, i'll tell you the different words god nature love universe higher power jesus or yeah. other different people so all of these are actually interchangeable words yeah i would agree and i kind of feel love is a really great word that i would want to use yeah and i think we all have elements of the divine in us as well um so there's I, an amazing yeah continue i was just talking to a friend and he said something that just blew me away but he was talking about how like his theory of life and religion is that like whatever creative force has created the universe wants to experience every facet of human life that they've created so all of us are god living out different lives mm. which i think is fascinating yes so that uh theory that fascinates me is that any given point it, it's not something that you know like the script is pre-written and i'm just a character playing in it it's probably not that it's it's actually that i'm co-creating my reality at any given point right and 
spirituality to me is you know like that again reconnection with love again and that all of us are uh, coming from the same source and it's not that we are humans it's just that we are having human experience yeah absolutely amazing i i see how nepal would have caused you to have these uh, cult experiences <laughs> let's not call them cult experiences <laughs> so here's another point when you are in cult you don't want your cult to be called as a cult well of course yeah <laughs> but i know i'm not in a cult because i'm not following a living leader <laughs> that's what you think <laughs> so here's another fun fact about being in a cult you can never prove that you are not in a cult true that's true and also how ba- do you based know on f williams is not creating that cult for you <laughs> yeah i mean it's also based on the um like uh that psychological study i was talking about Another part of being in a cult is that no one can prove to you that you are in a cult. Yeah. <laughs> no no weight of evidence will make you question what you see. <laughs> totally. And so let's say if we were to end this conversation right now, what do you think we would have missed that you would have wanted to talk about? Man, I think we covered pretty much everything. We've got life, the universe, spirituality. <laughs> I feel pretty satisfied with what I've said. So tell me one uh, relationship lesson you learned really hard way. <laughs> one relationship lesson I learned the really hard way. Um stop inviting chaos into your life. Ooh. Yeah. That like that that need that I've had to be a caretaker when i realized that pattern um when i realized that i kept inviting people who came from broken homes and broken situations into my life it's still something that i'm learning to balance but you have to be aware enough to realize that not all of the chaotic problems in your life have to do with the people in it um you have to take some responsibility of who you let in can can i share my view point on it yeah uh so here's what i feel is going to happen to the statement that you just mentioned it's going to develop in the coming months or years the same mm-hmm. lesson that you have learned you're going to change the language of it and how i know is this uh, how i know this is because i have gone through something similar not not similar to you but in contextual where i thought what i learned from that experience was x but over the years it developed to be y yeah because what i saw you know like this is the incident that happened it's in the past it's in my head and i'll continue looking back to it just to get a reference point that oh this might have gone wrong at that point yeah you know originally i would think that x went wrong with this whole thing and the more i continue thinking about it over the months or over the years i'm going to figure out maybe x was just a superficial way of me not embracing the honesty part maybe mm-hmm. it has something deeper to do and maybe it was not x maybe it was y can i share what happened with me like around this yeah. part yeah so uh 
originally i thought let uh, let me rewind and get exactly the words i chose to remember that time yeah so at that moment when breakup happened and all of that all of that happened it was really crazy you know i'm talking about one breakup which was like really hard for me mm-hmm. uh the lesson i thought i learned at that time was uh easier to come easier to go yeah obviously that's quite a wrong statement <laughs> but at that time it made me peaceful that there is some logical explanation to what why this crazy thing happened yeah right or why she why she cheated on me sure like like you know like that that kind of stuff and over the years like it's been two three years now <clears throat> and that reasoning has changed to that maybe i set wrong expectations or i had wrong expectations around that one person is enough to complete me to fulfill all of my expectations So yeah that's I, a classic right i came to realization that even the lessons that we are learning from the very same incident are going to mature and grow up with time and thinking yeah that's that's a classic problem i mean i think our our modern narrative about love is that one person will complete us and when we're growing up in a broken society part of us grows up broken almost no matter what and we have a lot of hunger to fill those empty parts of ourselves and yeah i think we can quite easily invite chaos in if we're just following the same patterns that we grew up with and not questioning the people the same way you know like in. a lot of a lot of us date the you know the version of our parents somehow Yeah, the version of our parents or I mean I I was just reading that book The Body Keeps the Score which is insanely good um and really learned a lot about a lot of things that I've gone through and that people in my life have gone through but yeah we kind of we seek out the dysfunction that we're used to we seek out mm. the we seek out the bad situations that we're used to because our brains become used to following certain patterns even if they're so broken because they feel normal and they feel safe we can also become addicted to dysfunction like yeah. we can we can um we can end up following a pattern of dysfunction and then we can end up creating dysfunction where we don't find it and that's something that i've gone through and that i've had done to me interesting i don't want to check that book out it sounds interesting the title is good yeah i mean i i just started reading it last night actually and um yeah i i was so intrigued by it i ended up staying up way later than i should have even though i had to get up early for this um <laughs> because ev- just so many things started falling into place and he starts talking about how like everyone has experienced some sort of dysfunction some sort of trauma it's not always debilitating but like almost all of us have witnessed someone that we trust breaking our trust in a way that makes us hard to trust others <laughs> so 
because today is mother's day that's kind of a meme that i want to make i haven't seen the meme yet but it's a kind of meme i want to make uh happy mother's day to myself because of all the reparenting i have to do on me <laughs> right yeah. And, yeah i also think like i was talking about earlier i also think it's very dangerous to think of yourself as reparenting yourself because like no matter what ideas you come up with completely on your own, they need to be run through someone. Yeah. Like they need to be told to someone in your life. You need to discuss them with friends. You need to talk about them with people that you love. Cause otherwise you can just get yourself going bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then all of a sudden one day you're like, there's a conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> there's always somebody's influence on your thoughts. That's yeah. I believe. Yeah. Uh, amazing, Aaron. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Like, so far the craziest conversation I have. And oh, good. I really, yeah, so far. And <laughs> uh, fingers crossed. Let's see who else joins our call. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I call being the leader. Um, can I plug all my stuff? We'll see. We'll see to it. <laughs> Let's not do it on record. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, let's see when we get a chance to do this again. I'd be really interested to do a pod, uh, be a guest on your podcast. Let's see yeah. when you start that. And uh, I'm just grateful that you joined us. Thank you for having this yeah. conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, okay. I guess uh, whoever is watching and listening, I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Sounds good, man. Bye.